0: You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Hey, everyone, welcome to the podcast this week. We are going to be hearing from someone that we've, never heard from before, at least as far as their area of leadership goes. We're going to be hearing from someone who deals in the emergency and disaster relief realm, and I think there's going to be a lot of interesting leadership insights that we can learn from this person. But first off, joining me in studio this week to listen to and discuss the interview are my friends and fellow leaders, Jake Sullivan and Molly Bowser. So the question I want to start off with today is, what was a disaster or emergency that had the greatest impact on
1: your life? Jake? So I feel like my answer should be uh, 9-11. But I'm just on the border there of where most of my memories pre-9-11 attacks are of like hanging out with friends and not actually how the world worked. Yeah. So my answer is probably going to end up being uh, the financial collapse, the housing collapse of the early, mid-2000s. It just sort of disillusioned me on investing in, Like I've rented my whole life, and like I don't really care to buy money. I have a weird relationship with money and banks and that sort of stuff because I saw so many people's like life investments fall apart when I was young. That um, I'm a bit more trepidatious. Trepidatious,
0: yeah. So what I would say is I I think that that affects a lot of uh, at least a certain age of millennials. They they grew up and saw maybe their parents lose a lot of money or maybe even they were trying to get into the job market when the great recession occurred. But it's interesting that you talk about airports because I actually, you're older than me, but I remember going to the gate and like seeing my dad off. I guess he flew a decent amount to go to speaking engagements and things like that. So when I was a kid, I remember going down there and, you know, saying goodbye to him. And so it, you know, I, I could definitely tell the differences whenever, whenever that occurred. It's, it's pretty strange to think how different things were cuz I don't think about it anymore but like it really it really did change things. Yeah. So Molly, how about you? Um I think mine would be when the wildfires hit California last year. And I feel like when you speak of disasters or emergencies you think earlier in life they're more impactful, but last year I'm from the West Coast. I'm from California and so when they hit I, I was aware of them because, oh, that's really sad. It's affecting a lot of people. But I have family out there. Yeah. And it, it really did. Like, nobody got dis- displaced or anything like that. But it was really close to home and they saw ashes going by all the time. And it was, it was scary for me because I was like, oh, the reality of disasters and emergencies is that it affects people. And whether it's family or not, it affects people. And so I think when disasters or emergencies strike now, I'm more aware of how they affect people. Yeah. And I think that does come as you get older. The other thing is it comes as you experience them, as they affect your life. And a lot of us in the United States are blessed to where at least the the non-natural disasters have not affected us nearly like they have affected some other people in other countries. And so we're really blessed in that regard. And I think we would do well to remember a couple things that you're going to hear in a few minutes in this interview, which are have compassion and empathy for people, because that will really help you in your leadership and also just as disasters occur to remember how blessed you are and that there are other people that are experiencing a lot more difficult things than you are at that given time. Well, our guest today is the Director of the Emergency and Disaster Management Program at Ohio Christian University. He served as the Director of Emergency Disaster Services at the Salvation Army along the U.S. Gulf Coast, where he... Was responsible for all Salvation Army emergency and disaster relief operations in the states of Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi. He continues his relationship with the Salvation Army as a trainer and consultant, allowing for an abundance of real world experiences for students at Ohio Christian University with one of the world's largest nonprofit organizations active in emergency and disaster work. He currently sits on the editorial board for the Journal of Emergency Management, which is a top tier academic journal in the emergency management field. Here is Dr. Thad Hicks. Thad, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure.
0: So you've had experience on both the academic and practitioner sides of emergency management. Which of these came first in your life? How did you get involved in this area of work?
1: So I, I started uh, probably with uh, some of the church work that was going on, um, humanitarian and relief stuff. You know, the The reality is that uh, pre 9-11, there were just a handful of schools doing, officially doing emergency management as a a discipline. So, um, you know, early on, it was, you know, uh, churches, nonprofit organizations, the Salvation Army. um, You know, we were doing. I didn't know it was emergency management, but hindsight, I, I look back now and I realize that we were doing it before it probably was even a discipline or an officially sort of recognized discipline. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's so, you know, uh, if I had to say it would probably be the, you know, sort of the practitioner piece. Um, I like to call myself a academic anyways, that, and that, you know, I'm a practitioner first and I went to school and all this stuff and, uh, sort of learned, uh, I, I, I may have done it backwards where you sort of start to learn the theoretical underpinnings of what it is you're doing or what it is you've been doing. Um, But now I think it's come sort of full circle and I'm taking the academic piece, the practice piece, and sort of coupling them together. But um, when people ask me now, my uh, response is, you know, I'm a trainer and a practitioner. Oh, yeah. And I also uh, am a college professor.
0: So it sounds like from your answer that because of experiences either in the United States or just internationally, because of different disasters and emergencies that have occurred, there's been some some growth and maybe some more focus on emergency and disaster management. Is that from a more practitioner side, or is that also an academic interest?
1: Um, well, I think just out of necessity, the field has grown, right? Um, you know, nine eleven. There was probably four, approximately four programs that were doing some traditional sort of emergency management as we would we would know it today. Now there's probably close to 400 schools. Wow. So the need is pushing both of those. So we've got schools all over the place and it's, it's starting to specifically are getting real particular. So some are, you know, focusing on public health. Others are focusing on uh, focusing on more of a traditional emergency management. Some are doing fire science. And so now it's as the, um, the need sort of continues to grow. And as more and more, even the private sectors now, um, starting to sort of branch out and say, we need somebody who can help us figure out how to stay afloat in the case of a, an event. Or um, how, how do we make more money if a uh, storm's coming? You know, how do we keep our uh, product frozen or our power on, so on and so forth?
0: So in the midst of all this specialization in this field, would you say that there are still key issues and conversations going on that are important to what you do?
1: Oh, sure. Um this, the idea of management, because um, you know the the role of the emergency manager oftentimes is to to bring some degree of order out of the chaos that's an emergency or a disaster. So we're we're constantly talking, and there's just push and pull between sort of this top-down uh, management and or this sort of bottom-up, and what works best. It seems that um, there's this general sort of a move or a swing, if you will, towards you know, we're we're going to delegate via committee and we're going to have these you know these groups of people. Uh, everyone sort of gets their input in. But there's still a um, there's still a real strong sort of chunk of the emergency management sort of body that says. You know, during an emergency or during a, a, a large sort of event like a disaster, you know, we don't have time to convene a committee. We don't have time to get a group of people together to talk about it. There has to be sort of this individual who's making calls and telling people what they need to do. So,
0: and where do you come down in that conversation? Do you think that it's important to have someone who's at the top, who's able to make the final decisions, or do you tend more toward the side of having a larger group of people making decisions?
1: So it's a relatively small thing. So we have, uh, it's the national incident management. It's called NIMS. And through NIMS, we have what's called incident command. and incident command sort of breaks apart all the sort of the, the different roles, and that can, can grow, it can expand or shrink down as needed. I think that with a, a person at the top, which we refer to as an incident commander, that works best in an emergency. Um, I think the, the incident command sort of uh, the group, it act almost as like a mini committee, And they're bringing in their expertise in a particular area, and they're informing the incident commander. But, um, you know, when everything's sort of falling apart, there has to be – I would say there probably needs to be somebody who's there to make the the hard choices, the hard decisions.
0: So when it comes to the academic setting, which is a world that you operate in significantly in your your current role – how how do you introduce students to the hands on side of emergency and disaster relief and management?
1: So the practice side of what we do is, is very important. There, you know, the um, like I said, you know, pre nine eleven, so eighteen years ago, there were most of the people um, who were running, whether it be at the federal level, the local level, even the state level, they didn't have any sort of official education in emergency management. Like, a, you know, something, they didn't have a degree. Um, even when I started, so I, I wrote the pro this program in '08. We started with classes in late 09. Um, I'm not sure there was anybody in my sort of position at, at my level as a, as a program director who had a sort of a terminal degree in emergency management didn't exist. So there's, there's, that sort of is, has held over there and now, A handful of uh, program directors who do have PhDs in in emergency management, but the vast majority are still, you know, they're degreed in something else, but this just happens to be where their expertise is or their experience. Um, But that sort of, that culture within the field has stuck around, so um, there's a a real push to get young emergency managers, people who are coming in with an education, to make sure that that's coupled with experience. And so it's very easy for me to plug a student into with a local emergency manager who may not have a degree, but has 15, 20 years of experience, which oftentimes is worth as much, if not more than the piece of paper that someone hangs on their walls. And so, um, basically bringing those two groups together, it allows for my students to get tons of experience, um, in addition, one, you know, one of the organizations that I'm still very, very uh, involved with, the Salvation Army, has been uh, very open to letting me plug in my students. So we've, I've sent students all over the domestically, all over the United States, but also um, just within the last couple of years, we've sent students to Haiti. We've had uh, students in Puerto Rico. Just last year, I had uh, four different groups of students on the Gulf Coast and. Um, in Florida after the hurricanes that came through there. So, um, they recognize the value that the students bring, but they, they also recognize the value that they're giving the students.
0: It seems like a lot of disasters that we hear about today come on the coasts. Is that accurate or are disasters and emergencies a lot more broad and varied maybe than what we see in the news?
1: Well, there is a there it is very broad so the field of emergency management the stuff that we're dealing with it doesn't just happen on the coast but um, those are sort of hazard areas we refer to them sort of vulnerable pieces of the uh, of the uh, landmass in the United States so we do see more just because you know you the the events that are striking there are oftentimes super powerful people don't like to hear this but if it was up to me and I was in charge of sort of zoning and that sort of stuff, I wouldn't let people live on the coast. It's a super high prone area for, uh, disasters and, um, you know, just a little more dangerous than living. You know, I, I was living on the Gulf coast and I live in Ohio now and it's kind of a weird move. Most emergency management people, they want to move to where the, uh, the, the action is, if you will. Um, in Ohio, we have the occasional uh, tornadoes that come through and just this, you know, past Memorial Day, we had a tornado that hit Dayton, Ohio, and the region here. But for the most part, you know, if it's not a uh, cold weather event or some flooding, it's pretty safe to live in the Midwest. Um, we just we we uh, encounter less hazards here than say you would in Mississippi.
0: So one point of clarification that would maybe help me and some of the other listeners is: is there a difference between the term emergency? and the term disaster when you're using it in the context of what you're doing? Uh,
1: officially, yes. Um, you know, what is the, uh, and I'm, I'm going to read these here, you know, a disaster is defined as a sudden calamity event, uh, a, a calamitous event bringing great damage or destruction, uh, sudden, uh, or sudden failure of some sort, you know, a dam breaks. Uh, where an emergency is an unforeseen combination of circumstances that calls for immediate action, an urgent need for assistance, relief. So, um, those sound very similar. We know them to be different, but they are often used, um, sort of interchangeably. Um, just for the, the, the lay person to hear that, I would, I would think that, you know, you can say an emergency is anything from, you know, driving into work today, a, uh, a fire truck passed me. There was a, a, a traffic accident and, uh, they were running emergency lights and sirens you know, there was a, this unforeseen combination of things came together and there was an urgent need for assistance. The same thing holds true with the disaster, but it's oftentimes larger, you know, so take that, that same car crash and make it a, you know, a 50 car pileup. It would probably be referred to as a, a, an emergency slash disaster.
0: So what are some of the situations and scenarios that you have been involved with where you've learned the most through your
1: experience? Well, I've, um, I've been all over the place. Uh, you know, I t- I'll tell you, one of the uh, most sort of impactful areas is um, our uh, trips. I was in uh, the uh, university uh, shortly after the uh, earthquake that struck Haiti a handful of years ago. We uh, had just started classes. I mean, it was the we started classes and then the next that after later that a- next day or the afternoon following, um, they had the earthquake. And so very quickly, um, all this stuff that I had been sort of proposing to the university that we needed to teach our students how to do this, and we had to teach our students how to do that. All of a sudden, it was uh, you know I was the, the step up or sort of shut up <laughs> the idea. And so we had to operationalize a lot of this thing, these things I was pushing the university to implement. All of a sudden, uh, myself and a handful of, of surgeons and a couple nurses from Uh, some hospitals in the region we went down and um, started the work and so that was probably the most impactful because this stuff had been um, I'd been sort of saturating myself with emergency management and to be able to see it operationalized on the ground actually saving people's lives um, yeah that's something I'll never forget
0: so when it comes to leadership in those situations do you think that there is a difference between the leadership that's needed in an emergency setting? Is there a difference between that and other types of good leadership in more controlled environments?
1: I would say yes. The um, the, the nature of an emergency or disaster response requires uh, sort of decisive decision-making. I, I tell my students that um, the worst thing that you can do when you're in a position is just not make a decision. Um, these things are they're very fluid, but they're very fast moving. And so I tell them all the time, like, you, you know, you can recover from making a bad decision because the stuff is moving and and, and and it's changing so quickly. But it's hard to uh, sort of recoup the sort of the lost energy in a group if you refuse to make a decision.
0: So from that, are there any other missteps leaders tend to make when they are in high pressure settings where they may not know exactly what to do. You just mentioned them not making decisions. Are there any other places where leaders can slip up along the way?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, and and it's, it sort of goes along. One of the things goes along with, you know, this, this need for decision-making the very successful sort of, um, incident commanders, people who are making those decisions. Oftentimes they have, um, um, not super empathetic. They uh, they have a hard time. They may have a hard time understanding the, the sort of the impact what they're what they're doing. We have this list of priorities that we always sort of filter anything we do through. And, and the first one is life safety. The second is incident, incident stabilization. And so the um, the incident commanders can sometimes step on people um, because he or she is singularly focused on saving lives, and stabilizing the incident. Um, And so I think the slip-up oftentimes comes with just dealing with individuals and dealing with people. Are there
0: general decision guidelines for emergency and disaster situations that you found helpful or maybe that are talked about frequently in the academic circles as good guidelines for how to make sure that you are making the best decisions possible?
1: Well, I mean, we you know, much of this work is informed by, you know, the mistakes that the guy or the gal before you made. Um, just this morning in class, we were talking about all the issues that uh, that popped up following the Pentagon response at 9/11, and you know, there is a there's an after action report that Arlington County, Virginia, put together, and it's like 300 pages long, and the vast majority of that is things that they think that they, they did poorly and things that they could do better, uh, do better next time. And so this this is sort, it's a sort of a living list, this sort of living checklist. Um, anytime a major event happens, as emergency managers, we're sort of frothing at the mouth waiting for the after action report to come out because it, it, it either helps redirect what we're going to do next time or it helps sort of um, um, sort of give a blessing to, to the plan that we currently have in place. I'm not sure there's a sort of an overarching list out there that, you know, you can put your hands on. Um, but any time a, a big event happens, we, uh, we get that, that list of what we did well, what we did poorly, and what we can do better next time, and, and, and that changes everything about our planning, about the plans we currently have in place.
0: And I'm sure you have some sort of idea of some of the trends on this list. When it comes to good leadership, in addition to just making decisions and making sure that you get into action, are there other good principles that leaders who maybe aren't in your field can pick up from those who are and who have been in the trenches doing some difficult work?
1: Sure. Um, I think, you know, and I I touched on it a little bit ago, but, you know, this idea of being decisive, um, not being afraid, because like I said, we learn from the mistakes that we make. And I've made so many mistakes. But after I make them, I'm very sort of upfront with them. I put them out there for people to look at because I don't want someone else to make the same mistake I did. But, you know, one of those first things is you have to you have to make a decision. You know, one of the Honestly, one of the reasons that I ended up in Mississippi in the first place was that some of the people that were making some decision makers prior to me um, refused to make decisions. It's a problem for us, you know, the uh, stepping on people sometimes. But I think uh, that the sort of the seasoned incident commander, the emergency manager, um, begins to develop uh, an understanding of that and some empathy is, is developed. We understand that uh, the people that we're working with and the people that we're serving, working for are hurting and damaged oftentimes. And so, you know, we, we, we uh, something I'm constantly training my my students. And in fact, we have a compassion fatigue and secondary trauma course that my students have to take. And one of that is uh, sort of being able to look inwardly and understand how this is impacting us and how we're treating others because of it.
0: And one of the things that I like that you implied in your answer is that good leaders in your field need to be open, especially looking at their past mistakes, because that is one of the best ways to learn, as you said. And so when you make mistakes – Realizing that that's almost an inevitable part of your job, but not hiding those and instead sharing them and you personally learning from them, your team as well, but maybe even the the broader field of study so that everyone can get better and maybe not make those same mistakes. And I think that's a really valuable thing that a lot of leaders don't like to do. They don't like to open themselves up to correction and critique, but it sounds sure. like it sounds like your field is maybe the perfect place for that type of leadership trait to develop.
1: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, we some of these things. I mean, we you can do a flood event five hundred times, and you're not going to get it exactly right any of those five hundred times. But you're going to get a little bit better each time because you're able to gather up what what you did poorly before, or what you can do better next time.
0: So broadly speaking what are some of the traits that you want the students that you're working with the students that you're teaching and training to leave your program with as far as leadership traits that will help them to be more effective in the line of work that you're preparing them for
1: That's that's pretty easy so empathy I need them to I need them to understand the other and how 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 other people are are being affected compassion right if you, if you don't feel for the people that you are serving, then, you know, you're not going to be very good at it. And then, then being able to think on their feet, I don't know what, what I would call that, but that is a trait that I want, I want my my students to have. And I think it's valuable for any emergency manager because as these situations change, you, you know, you can't plan for these emergencies or these disasters by, by definition, they're, they're happening around us. They're, they're fluid, they're changing. Um, and so if you can't change your decision making and your leadership around it, you're, you're, you're going to be uh, you're going to be swamped.
0: Well, Thad, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and for sharing about your expertise. Now, before we finish, I have a few final questions that are meant to inspire us toward better leadership. So you ready for this? Sure. What is some lesson saying or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day?
1: I like it. I like the saying, you know, it's uh, better to lead by permission than to lead by position.
0: Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is...
1: leaders honest. A leader is encouraging. And a leader is the hardest working uh, person in the room.
0: What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or
1: others? How can I better connect to my people and to those that we're, uh, that were working for or serving?
0: What book would you recommend to leaders?
1: This is going to show my, my bias as a culture guy, but... Um, Kiss bow or shake hands it's a uh, it's a business textbook on how to do business outside of your own culture um, if it's not that I, I I pulled that off my shelf it sits on my shelf currently It's how to interact with people um, that's culturally sort of contextualized and that's very important in a globalized world
0: If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be <laughs>
1: Probably sounds a little corny, but spending and spending time with your with your people. And I don't mean, you know, swinging in and poking your head in the office and saying, hey, but maybe going to lunch, you know, sitting down and doing some coffee. And and it's in, and a, a conversation would be good, but maybe just listening and not listening for a place for you to say your thing, but to actually listen to your people. It'll make you a better leader yourself.
0: And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not?
1: Why or why not? Probably why not, right? Um, why not, at least to me, implies that there's some movement forward. Um, there's, uh, why seems to have a, a, the, the connotation that you're stopping to ask something. Why not is sort of barreling forward, and uh, you'll figure it out on the go there.
0: Well, Thad, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and sharing with us some of the leadership principles and insights that we can learn from your work in emergency and disaster management.
1: Thanks, Josh. I appreciate it.
0: I hope you found today's interview valuable. We'll be back on Friday to discuss the interview and share some of our key takeaways with you. If you want to share some of your own thoughts on what you heard today, or if you want to leave other feedback for the show, email us at community at life And if you think today's interview could be helpful to someone else who cares about becoming a better leader, go ahead and share it with them until next time. Keep living and leading well.